Coming up on this edition of the Sark Fighter podcast, I'll have a look at the foundation for sarcoidosis research and how much progress is being made to fight this awful disease. Wild amount of progress that we've made in such a short period of time is what I think is really what provides hope. Because if we can keep this up, things will only keep growing, um, will only keep gaining momentum. And that's when, like I said, those really large players who really can make a huge impact will be forced to address it. They, they can't overlook us anymore when we have been making such progress and making so much noise in this space. An interview with Maggie Hudson of FSR coming up. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome to the Sark Fighter Podcast. This is episode four. I'm recording this on Sunday, March 15th of 2020. Today, I'll be talking with Maggie Hudson about the best places to find a sarcoidosis doctor, centers of excellence in sarcoidosis treatment. Talk to her about uh, why there is even some hope for sarcoidosis patients and maybe what all of us can do to move that along just a little bit. We'll cover a lot during the course of our hour-long interview. If you are new to the Sark Fighter podcast, and that pretty much would include everybody Maybe even me, since this is only the fourth episode, let me tell you just a brief amount about what I'm trying to accomplish here. Uh, I'm trying to make this a place where we can all gather, at least in the podosphere. There are some other virtual support groups out there, and I'll be mentioning one coming up in just a little bit. But uh, as a Sark patient myself, I know that what happened, there when I went public with my story on local television, and I'm a local television news anchor here in Roanoke, Virginia on WSLS 10, the NBC affiliate, I started hearing from people all over the region and eventually all over the country who found the story online, reaching out and saying, thank you for talking about sarcoidosis. Uh, I felt like I was all alone. I don't know anybody else who has this disease, and I'm just so glad that somebody's talking about it. And I looked around at my background as a broadcaster and uh, I listened to a lot of podcasts and I said, you know, this is, maybe this is something that I can do that I'm particularly uh, well suited for in terms of my background and being a Sark patient myself. And so I launched the Sark Fighter podcast and now, lo and behold, here we are on episode four. Um I also uh, reached out to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research and became an official advocate for FSR, recently returned from training in Chevy Chase, Maryland, where I met about 30 other advocates for FSR, and all of them, uh, Sark patients, all of them uh, have, a, have a, I would say, a severe case of sarcoidosis, and I interviewed uh, several of them, half a dozen, uh, at Chevy Chase, and you'll be hearing their stories uh, rolling out uh, very soon. Uh, Frank Rivera was the very first one in episode three. Frank told us his story, and he has sarcoidosis in every part of his body except for his, I want to say, his bladder and his liver. 
is only two organs he said are unaffected. It's in his bones. He is in constant pain. He says every day he's on a level seven out of 10. Uh, and he just has an amazing story to tell. And despite all of that, he is one of the foremost advocates, I would say, in the United States. He does walks. He does runs. He gets proclamations done. He really does do a lot for sarcoidosis. Um, I want to let you know that coming up in April, which is Sarcoidosis Awareness Month, uh, normally I am releasing a podcast every other Monday, but we will do four patients in four weeks in honor of Sarcoidosis Awareness Month, and uh, four of those will be the people that I interviewed when I was at the training, and I had the opportunity to interview them face-to-face as opposed to doing a Zoom meeting online. Um, now, one of the regular things that I do here on the Sark Fighter podcast is I look at the sarcoidosis calendar. I mentioned Frank in a moment ago. He hosts a virtual support group online, and that is through his website, which is sarcoidosisoflongisland.org. And if you give me just a moment here, I will tell you about his online support groups. And those support groups happen on the first Tuesday and the third Thursday of the month between 7 and 8.30 p.m., Come One, Come All, open to patients and to caregivers, and I'll put a link to how you can join that uh, with the show notes here in this podcast. So that is uh, something that will not be impacted by the coronavirus. Uh, but uh, Frank has posted on Facebook this past weekend that he wasn't feeling well, and we do we do hope that he's feeling better. I'm not sure, based upon his post, whether that's sarcoidosis-related or just something seasonal that's going around. Now, uh, it would seem inappropriate to not mention the coronavirus uh, at this point because uh, I was in Cleveland for three days at the Cleveland Clinic. I had a routine uh, meeting with my doctors. Things went very well. I had an MRI and it's showing I'm making some progress in the sarcoidosis on my spinal cord. So that's good. But while I was there, this is when the whole coronavirus thing went nuts. It was during those three days that the NBA canceled its schedule, that March Madness was canceled, the NHL canceled until further notice, the schools started closing. I teach a college course at Radford University, and uh, college uh, spring break was extended, and we'll now be teaching all of our classes virtually. All of that happened during the three days that I was gone, which made me feel terrible because I'm a news broadcaster and I felt like I needed to be back home working on these stories for the public, but this was just one of those things where where I was gone. But that's, that's a bit of an aside. I don't want to go down that wormhole. But uh, during that time also, FSR announced it would be postponing its Chicago summit that was scheduled for April 3rd through the 5th, but now it'll be held August 30th through September 1st. And Maggie uh, talked about that uh, summit in this interview that I did with her, but that was prior, the interview was recorded prior to those changes. So please remember when she mentions it that uh, the April 3rd through 5th has now been rescheduled for August 30th through September 1st. Now, as far as I know, the summits that FSR is holding in Miami on June 26th through the 28th and in Portland, September 11th through the 13th are still on. Of course, Portland and Washington State kind of ground zero in the United States for this whole uh, pandemic 
uh, epidemic, pandemic. A pandemic means that it's worldwide. So uh, hopefully everything will be fine in Portland by September. Uh, I'm not going to plug any other events right now because I'm afraid that they might be canceled because we just don't know what's going to happen next uh, with this coronavirus thing. I'm sitting here on a Sunday afternoon and just wondering what life is going to look like when we all come up for air. And uh, the governor of Virginia just uh, a couple of hours ago announced that there uh, there is a prohibition on any gathering of more than 100 people in the entire state of Virginia. So who knows what this is going to look like and how long it's going to last. But that's the case as I'm sitting here right now today. All right, one technical note in this podcast. Uh, we had a bit of trouble recording. Uh, a little bit of operator error on my end initially. I'm not sure how apparent that'll be. I, I'm aware of it. Uh, but then also the internet went out in Chicago while I was talking to Maggie. So we had to stop and then resume on another day. So if things sound a, bit, a little bit different at the beginning and the end, that's what it is. So stand by. My interview with Maggie Hudson is coming up. Hi. I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Now on the Sark Fighter podcast is Maggie Hudson. She's the communications manager for the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. We may refer to it as, as uh, FSR as we go forward with our interview because that's a lot easier to say. But Maggie, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on the show, John. So you've been with FSR since 2016. Uh, tell me, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your connection to FSR. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I joined FSR, like you said, a um, little over three years ago in 2016. I actually started as an intern and just got so involved in the organization, so caught up in the mission that I have stayed here for almost four years now. And I'm so excited to see all the growth that's been going on in those last four years and talk about it with you today. But a little background on myself, I joined FSR as a communications intern, quickly started working here full time um, as I got more involved in a lot of our programs that are patient facing. So we have a lot of education and support initiatives and they were growing at a very fast rate when I first started. So there was a lot of opportunity to jump in, get to know patients, get to hear their stories. Um, and it's really just motivated me to to stay involved with this organization and and focus on our mission, which is ultimately to stop sarcoidosis. Outstanding, outstanding. So you go from intern to communications manager, and and I love the the fact that what you're doing is is patient facing. So so for our uh, listeners' sake, there's so much going on with FSR, and I am just back as we record this today on February 24th, 2020. Uh, I'm just back from my first weekend of advocate training, and I met a lot of people uh, who are, uh, are dealing with sarcoidosis, and these are people who've been involved with FSR for a long time. I was definitely the new guy, 
Uh, tell me uh, a little bit about, or tell our listeners a little bit about the, uh, the advocate program, what that is, and what that's all about, and how that can help people with sarcoidosis. Yeah, so our advocate program is amazing. I think it's um, really a testament to our ability to engage patients in all of our programming. Um, because it is a program that has evolved so drastically from when it first started. So in 2015, we gathered together 15 of the most highly engaged sarcoidosis patients um, and caregivers as well. They were the advocates who were calling us on a weekly basis, if not on a daily basis, saying, hey, what can I do? How can I help? You know, I heard that this is happening. Do you mind if I go send me some educational materials and I'll represent the organization? Um, and at the time, we were a very small organization, um, staff-wise. We had, I think, four full-time staff members when we began the program. Um, so adding 15 really engaged volunteers was absolutely everything for us. It allowed us to really expand um, the number of events that we were attending, getting ourselves out there, providing one-on-one -on -one support for other patients who were newly diagnosed, families who were going through this process. Um, and that program has really taken off since then. That was in 2015. We had 15 advocates. Um, last year, we upped that and we had 96. Wow. Um, yes, 96 in almost every state in the U.S. We were only in Hawaii. Uh, but it's been really amazing to see the growth of the program. And now, especially in this past year, it's actually evolved from what used to be called the Patient Ambassador Program and now it's the FSR Patient Advocate Program. And the main difference there is we've actually narrowed down the almost job descriptions, if you will, into four different positions that people can take on. Um, we understand that obviously a lot of our volunteers are super engaged, super excited to get involved. However, this is a volunteer role for them. They are oftentimes a patient themselves. They're oftentimes sick and dealing with the day-to-day -day that comes with being chronically ill and fighting a rare disease. And they're also just dealing with other everyday stuff that we all have going on in our lives. Uh, so we knew it was really important to make sure that we weren't losing anyone just because they weren't able to commit to the full patient ambassador role. Uh, and that's how we ended up dividing the new program into four different parts, um, different advocate roles, if you will. They all have a different level of time commitment, a different level of training that is required, and they definitely are just ultimately working with the schedule of the volunteer, making sure that we're not asking anything too demanding of them, that they have the opportunity to step back and practice self-care and focus on themselves whenever need be. So yeah, it's something that we're really excited about. Uh, I am so glad that you were at the training. I think it's an awesome opportunity to really jump in and get involved and meet the amazing people that work with us on a day-to-day -day basis because they truly are some of the most amazing people I've met in my four years here. They are tireless and they, they are 100% committed to our mission. So we're so grateful to have them. Yeah, I, I interviewed six different people and I'll be reaching out and doing some remote interviews like we're doing now uh, with a lot of the others. It just literally ran out of time. But yeah, I, I interviewed two people who were up there walking around, they were cheerful, they were happy, and they told me stories about being sent home to die. There was nothing else that anybody could do. One, one woman 
told me that uh, that she needed a double lung transplant and her insurance wouldn't approve it because she was too sick to survive the transplant. They wouldn't approve the payment and they just sent her home and somehow she survived it and now she's up and she's working. Uh, sarcoidosis has made her blind in one eye. Uh, she's got it all through her body, but I, you know, she's just got so much energy and enthusiasm. And, you know, these people are, I felt like I wasn't sick enough to be there with them. You know, it's, uh, it's really something how, how energized that group is. No, for sure. They're a very tough group. And unfortunately we, we do hear those stories pretty much every day from our advocates as well from, as from other patients uh, who are just connecting with us for the first time. And unfortunately those stories are all too common. Uh, but it really does just show the strength of our community that these people are, I mean, they're fighting for their lives, but they're, they're willing to jump in and fight for other people's lives as well and do whatever they can to make the transition into becoming a sarcoidosis patient and, and kind of discovering that new normal, as it's called, um, yeah. for other newly diagnosed patients. And they're, they're sharing their knowledge and wisdom that they have. And some of them have had this disease for decades. And yeah. so to share their experiences with newly diagnosed patients, it can provide a lot of comfort to, to those who are going through this for the first time. Well, so now, and so the, the foundation, FSR, is doing all sorts of outreach. We've got uh, uh, summits this year, and I've been telling listeners about the dates on those summits, but uh, there are three, as I recall. Do you want to update folks on when those are and what people might expect? If they, if they attend? Yes, absolutely. Uh, our summits are something we're really excited about this year. In the past, we have always hosted patient conferences uh, in many states and cities all around the U.S. and even in Canada last year. Uh, those events used to be day-long conferences. We found that that was an effective model for some people, but for most of our patients, that was a lot. Um, it was a full day. We tried to pack in as much information as we could. And unfortunately, that led to, you know, six or seven hours straight of physician presentations and, and breakout groups. And it could just be exhausting for someone who's navigating this day with, you know, the chronic pain that comes with sarcoidosis. So we're really excited that we've kind of overhauled the patient conference program to be these uh, weekend long summits for 2020. Uh, so we'll have, the first one will be in Chicago, which is where FSR is based. It's April 3rd through 5th. Um, and that'll be the first summit that we've ever had. So we're really excited. We already have a ton of people registered. Uh, like I said, it's in our, our hometown where we were originally founded. Um, so it should be a great, a great first summit. It's also during Sarcoidosis Awareness Month, which is April. So we're also excited for kind of the extra visibility that that, that will bring to that summit. Yeah, our, our other two summits will be in Miami. We'll be there at the end of June, the 26th through the 28th. And then in September, we'll be in Portland, the weekend of September 11th through the 13th. Um, and both of those are going to be also, we anticipate really big attendance. Um, and yeah, we already have presenters lined up for them. Uh, everything from physicians who are the leading experts in the field, to um, you know, social workers and caseworkers who can help you with navigating kind of the financial insurance side, uh, living with sarcoidosis, as well as you know, obviously a, a very large focus on self-care and wellness uh, will be kind of a new addition to the summits. We've always had a few presentations about self-care, 
at our conferences, but at the summits, we'll actually be having everyone practice what we preach. Um, and we will have a wellness center set up at each summit where patients and their loved ones can go between sessions to relax, learn some self-care practices that they can take, take home with them and continue in their day-to-day lives. So just making sure it's a, a really holistic approach to these summits. Yeah, so, so you have the, uh, the medical experts come in, uh, and that's, that's really interesting to me as I'm still kind of uh, looking for uh, you know, my path forward because I, you know, and this, I heard this over and over from other patients as well, is, you know, a medicine will work for a little while and then it doesn't. And then you transition to another medication and so forth and so on. And, and then the answer always behind the uh, primary, some of these secondary medications is prednisone, which nobody likes for multiple good reasons. Um, so do, do these folks, these researchers, these doctors who come, do they offer like the latest research or what do they talk about? Yeah, so they'll cover a whole different um, spectrum of topics. So we have some presenters who will be talking about the basics of the disease. We call it SARC 102 because we know that patients themselves are already so well educated. You've already scoured the corners of the internet to find everything you can about the disease. So SARC 101, you guys have already got, but kind of building on that knowledge on kind of the what physicians can bring to that conversation, which is the little more technical side. Um, we make sure that it's very accessible to patients. But like I said, patients with this disease already have a really high health literacy because they're forced to, because their physicians might not be able to explain the disease that well to them when they're first diagnosed. So we definitely have that, some disease basics. And then we also have physicians who will go into depth on things like steroid sparing treatment options, which would be the treatments that can help you avoid going back on prednisone. We also will have people speaking about the latest research in the field um, and the importance of getting involved in research, whether it's just staying up to date on the latest trends in sarcoidosis research, or if that means actually participating in a clinical trial or some other research opportunity yourself. Uh, So we'll have physicians who can speak to all those things, and we'll also have question-answer sessions with patients to answer any questions they might have that weren't covered in the presentations. Got it. Got it. So how many people would attend a a well-attended conference? So in the past, our patient conferences, like I said, we've hosted numerous throughout the year across the country. Last year, we had nine uh, in-person patient education opportunities. Those typically would, we would see about 100 to 150 attendees. Uh, however, these summits, since there are fewer of them, but they are uh, full weekend commitments, we're hoping that people will be able to travel from the surrounding region. Um, we've already heard from a lot of people who are doing just that. We have hotel blocks set up to make it more accessible to people. But we anticipate, I believe, attendance will be capped at 250 for each conference. But we anticipate... I mean, I think we already are well on our way to having a very full conference or summit taking place in Chicago in April. And the registration for the Miami and Portland summits is not yet open, but we do have save the date forms. So if people are interested, they can let us know. And if we find that all of a sudden the save the date forms are filling up and we have more than that, that capped limit, um, we will do what we can to make sure that we can accommodate everyone who's interested in attending. Great. Well, I, I certainly hope that I'll be able to attend one of them uh, by the end of the year uh, and because I, I'm, I'm anxious to do that and I found it so rewarding to be able to talk to other people who are suffering with sarcoidosis 
Uh, and I, I would encourage anybody who has the opportunity to, to do that, to, to look at these summits and say, wow, I mean, maybe that wasn't something I was thinking about, but uh, that might help me a lot because it, it does seem to help to talk to other people. Do, do folks tell you that, Maggie? Oh, absolutely. And that's another reason we're building in kind of a new format to these summits is because, like I said, it was our old traditional conferences were one day. Um, it was a lot of back-to-back -back presentations. And when we did have time for a break, you know, we did see patients and caretakers who were attending, who were trying to make those connections, trying to chat with each other. We made sure in our old conference format to build in at least an hour after the event for people to network. Um, however, our new summit will build that in over the course of a few days. So that way, if someone's, you know, feeling a little under the weather, feeling a little ill, wants to go back to their room and take a break, they don't feel like they're missing out on the chance to really have those moments of connection and fellowship with other individuals who are affected by sarcoidosis. So there will be plenty of opportunities for that at our summits as well. Beautiful. Okay, so, you know, FSR has grown so quickly, and that's relatively speaking, because you're a 20-year-old organization, or maybe I should say we, since I'm an advocate, uh, but you work there, so... Uh, but I know that, that it's uh, September of this year, if I'm correct, that uh, FSR will celebrate a 20th anniversary. And yeah. I, in talking to the people at the event in Washington, D.C. this past weekend, you guys have really ramped up. I mean, you just mentioned that it wasn't so long ago there were only four employees. Now there are 11. How have you been able to do that? I mean, it's really through the dedication of our team. By team, I don't just mean our staff. I mean the whole sarcoidosis community, those engaged advocates who are going out there and helping us with fundraising. That's made it possible to grow our programs as large as they have become. But then also the people who are helping us execute them, who are making sure that, you know, if we have a challenging week or month, that they're stepping in to help and make sure that we're able to get everything we can, everything we can do done to support sarcoidosis patients. Because at the end of the day, the whole community is a team and we, we do rely on each other heavily. You know, we want to be there for patients as much as possible to get them through every step of this process and, and to ultimately find better treatments and a cure for this disease. And we can't do it without their support. I mean, engaging in research, engaging in our programs, giving us the feedback that we desperately need to make sure that we're serving patients. If at the end of the day, patients aren't engaging with our programs, you know, that's a problem for us. So that's why we're constantly reevaluating, for example, the patient ambassador program, making sure it's accessible to everyone by kind of recreating it into the advocacy program. Same with the summits. Our conference format in the past, we got great reviews from patients about how helpful it was to have an educational opportunity like that, but we know the toll it takes on patients. And so we are constantly, constantly listening to the feedback of our community to make sure that our programs are gonna work for them because at the end of the day, that's what we're here for. And it's because of them that we've been able to have such amazing growth and, and be where we are this year on our 20th anniversary. Well, that's, uh, that's awesome. The, the other thing that I heard over and over and over was that every, well, I heard from every single person I talked to, they were originally misdiagnosed and then misdiagnosed. And then finally, somebody figured out, oh, it's sarcoidosis. And then they had the hardest time finding a physician to see them in their particular area. What are you guys doing to make that less and less of a problem? Yeah, so several things. So first, to address the misdiagnosis. Um, unfortunately, that is so, so common in sarcoidosis patients. 
They are constantly misdiagnosed with other lung diseases, including lung cancer, which can be very scary um, going through that process. But then when they finally do come to the diagnosis of sarcoidosis, unfortunately, like you said, it provides more questions than answers. And that's where we are able to jump in. Unfortunately, we don't really have a way to get in contact with those patients beforehand. We try to make sure that we have as many resources as possible for those going through the diagnostic process. But then once someone does get a confirmed diagnosis of sarcoidosis, that's where we can jump in and make sure that they are receiving the best possible care, Um, which obviously the first step we always say is finding your physician. We call it the quarterback of your care team because everyone has that one physician who's going to go a little bit above and beyond to make sure that they understand what they're going through, make sure that they're coordinating their care with their other providers. And unfortunately, it's, it's all too rare to find that person right off the bat and have that one care provider be the person who diagnoses you with sarcoidosis. So what we do is we make sure that we have several opportunities in place for patients to connect with a care provider in their area who understands sarcoidosis. And so one of the ways we do that is we have an online physician finder It's on our website. Um, John, I think you'll be able to link to it in the podcast description. Yes. Um, But if you're not familiar with our website, uh, you can either just Google our name or go to stopsarcoidosis.org. And from there, you'll be able to find all of our resources. Uh, So we have our physician finder. Like I said, it is searchable by state and specialty. So if you know that you're looking for a pulmonologist in Colorado or, you know, a rheumatologist in Virginia. You're able to do that and narrow it down our large list of physicians to those who meet your needs in your area. However, if you ever find that you're not finding a physician listed in your area, you can always, always reach out to us and we will do our best to find you the best recommendation in your area. Additionally, we have a new program that's really exciting that we think will really be important for patients. It's been in the works for several years now. It's called SARC-ID. That's our internal name for the program. But basically, it's we are identifying the care centers that are providing a high standard of care for sarcoidosis specifically. So we know there's a lot of places out there that are, you know, the world-renowned medical centers that that can provide a really high level of care for a variety of diseases. But then when you look at places like cancer treatment, you see that there are the places that are, you know, cancer center of excellence. And that's what we're really looking to create for sarcoidosis patients is a comprehensive list of all the places that kind of meet those standards. So for the past two years, we have been working with the World Association of Sarcoidosis and Other Granulomatous Diseases, which is a mouthful of a name, but we call them WASOG for short. It is all of our physicians internationally who are experts on sarcoidosis. And so we've been working with them to create criteria that these medical institutions would have to meet to be designated either a sarcoidosis care center or a sarcoidosis center of excellence. Um, Because we do hear from patients who, you know, they're willing and able to travel some distance for care. And we know that's not a possibility for everyone, which is why we are looking to expand this list to make sure that we have adequate care centers in, you know, every state in the U.S. and then expanding that internationally as well, working with our international partners. It's really exciting. We are working on having a full searchable directory on our website, but for now there's a full listing of, so far we have over 20 centers of excellence and I believe over a hundred care centers that have met the requirements needed to to kind of have that designation. And we can link to that in the podcast description as well, because I know people will be interested to learn more about that program. Um, But basically, John, to answer your question, through those two resources, our 
SARC ID program that has the Centers and Centers of Excellence and our online physician finder, we want to make sure that patients are getting good quality care that's accessible to them. And like I said, if you're not able to find a care center near you, if you're not able to find a physician in your area that meets your needs, reach out to us. We will do everything we can to help you find someone that can coordinate that care for you and be your quarterback because ultimately that's the most important thing is making sure that you have adequate treatment plan in place. That's our first priority before we get you involved in any of our other numerous programs. Sure. When you say reach out, is that a, is that a phone call? Is that an email? Uh, that can be a phone call. That can be an email. That can be reaching out to us on social media. There's a variety of ways to get involved with us. We're always checking all of those different avenues. But the most direct way would be either to call us or to email us at info at stopsarcoidosis.org. Got it. And you've got a Facebook page? Yes, we have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram and we have a Twitter and we just recently launched a link. So yeah, you can, if you reach out to us through any of those avenues as well, if that's what you're more, more comfortable with. And additionally, we also have an online support community, which is completely anonymous. So if you're looking for recommendations there, uh, you can actually reach out to others who might be in your area and see, you know, what, what care centers they're going to as well. So that's another option. Oh, that's great. I was surprised at my meeting to find, um, I go to the Cleveland Clinic and drive seven hours to do that and, and had two other people at my meeting who have the same doctors I have, which really surprised me. Yeah, so that's one thing that we're looking to do with the, the SARC ID program is identify more centers like the one that you're going to. The foundation for sarcoidosis research is the nation's leading nonprofit organization dedicated to finding the cure for this disease and to improving care for sarcoidosis patients worldwide. Since its establishment in 2000, FSR has fostered over $5 million in sarcoidosis-specific research efforts and has provided disease education and support for thousands of individuals navigating life with sarcoidosis. Learn more about FSR and how they're supporting those impacted by this disease at www.stopsarcoidosis.org. Welcome back to the Sark Fighter podcast. Today we are talking with Maggie Hudson, who is the communications manager for the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. And she has been uh, talking a little bit about the foundation and some of the struggles that come along with uh, getting people to know about sarcoidosis so we can uh, raise money and and maybe find a cure someday because one of the things we all want to uh, look for as we battle this disease is hope. So uh, Maggie, uh, welcome back to the podcast today. Thanks, John. Glad to be here. So the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is 20 years old this year, and it has uh, it, it's really grown. I know that your staff there in Chicago has gone from four people just a few years ago up to uh, nearly a dozen people now. 
and you guys have awarded uh, over $750,000 to different uh, grant awardees. How are you raising money? What are you doing with the money? And how do you decide where to put it? Yeah, so actually over our 20 years, we've now invested over $5 million in Sarquid. $5 million. Okay, I'm sorry. Yes. Um, yes, and that all goes to different places. So the, the $750,000 that you were talking about is um, from our partnerships with, I believe you were referencing the number um, for the American Thoracic Society. We've partnered with them from the start um, since before we even had our own infrastructure for awarding grants. Um, and so any fundraising that we did back in our early days, we often partnered with them or other organizations to actually award those grants. Um, but now we have the infrastructure ourselves. Like you said, our organization is nearly a dozen people. So we're able to really handle those large grant awards. Um, which has made all the difference for our research programs. We now have several huge, huge, really successful research programs that are involving multiple medical institutions across the U.S. and internationally. And we're awarding, yeah, now probably almost up to $6 million uh, will hit this year in 2020. That's fantastic. Now, one of the issues that I learned about when I was at the advocate training in Washington, D.C. this past weekend was the need for something called an animal disease model. Mm -hmm. what, is the, what is the difficulty there and why do you need that so bad? Well, John, as you know, sarcoidosis, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, and one of the biggest unknowns is the disease mechanism and why it happens. We know that people who have sarcoidosis uh, have these granulomas that are forming throughout their body, uh, but we don't know necessarily what's causing it. There's a lot of research about if it's a, an environmental agent or if there's a genetic component, but at the end of the day, we know that if we can discover uh, the pathways that are kind of leading to this granuloma formation, then we can better understand the disease. And then, most importantly, uh, individuals and companies who are looking to develop drugs to treat the disease will have a valid model to test it on. So when you say animal model or disease model, we refer to it as a disease model, but it is the typical animal model of testing on a mouse, testing on a rat, and essentially, yeah, finding a way to create granuloma formation, whether it's in an animal model, or we actually have some really interesting awardees who are using actually uh, computer models that they're able to have a computer create an algorithm that would simulate granuloma formation. So it's really wild, the different variety in the disease models that, that we're seeing, but we do find it's easy to explain it in the context of the typical animal model that people think of. Gotcha. And, and then, so, and so as it stands right now, uh, I, if I've been and I've just been pinging around uh, the FSR website a little bit this morning, which I would encourage listeners to do if they're interested. But I've been pinging around and and seeing that there is a uh, there are one or two groups out there who are very very close to being able to create granulomas in a mouse with some sort of molecular manipulation. And then once we get to the point where we can make a granuloma grow in a mouse then we can maybe get to the point where we can find medicines that attack those granulomas effectively. Am I describing properly where we are? Uh, yes. Yeah. So yeah, we initially awarded five grants to five promising projects back in 2017. 
Um, and now we've awarded a continuation of funding for a few of those programs. And yes, many of them, the ones that we've awarded the continuation of funding have shown a lot of promise. What we're really looking for is for one model to really kind of come to the forefront and be widely accepted by the larger research community. Because until that happens and until there's kind of one or multiple um, accepted valid disease models, uh, they won't be valid options for testing new drugs. And so drug companies won't be able to use those until the wider sarcoidosis community and research community kind of approves them as an official disease model. Okay. And then as I understand it also, if we get that disease model working, then all of a sudden government money might become available more readily? Yes. Yeah, that's another thing is, so in general, the drug development process, developing any new therapy for a, a disease can take just hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, it's it's a huge process and it's not something that any one entity could usually handle on their own, um, which is why we kind of say we're laying the pathway for those larger funders to come in and do that. So by by funding a disease model and kind of putting that puzzle piece together, if you will, we're laying the groundwork for the NIH, for other government agencies, for, you know, large funders that, um, pharmaceutical companies that maybe have the funding and even maybe a promising drug, but they didn't initially see it as worth investing in because there was no valid disease model to test the drug on. So how close are we to maybe getting that NIH funding that might then take us in, from where we are to where we want to be? Unfortunately, that's hard to say specifically with the NIH too, because there's always, their funding is always in flux. Um, they do have some programs that are geared towards rare and or orphan diseases um, and treatments, if you will. We definitely have some researchers who have been working and getting NIH funding for sarcoidosis work, uh, which is really exciting. And it's something that wasn't necessarily happening 10 or 20 years ago before FSR was in the space and before we were able to kind of bridge the gap for those early career researchers. So it's very exciting to see that there is sarcoidosis research being funded. It's just a matter of scale and the funding that's available in the next couple of years. Right. Yeah. Um, I was uh, scanning back over the $750,000 figure I came up with is for those five grant awardees uh, towards the disease model. That's uh, that, that was that number that I had right there. So um, now the patient registry is really important. Uh, tell people if they're listening, how they can be in the patient registry and what they might expect and how that helps. Yeah, absolutely. So our patient registry was started in partnership with the NIH uh, five years ago now. It is an online, completely anonymous registry. And I'll get more into the specifics of calling it anonymous because you do have to put in your name and contact information. But first, to give an overview of what the registry is and what it can provide for the research space, our patient registry is 72 questions. It is all patient reported. Or if you would prefer um, to have a caretaker do the reporting for you. That's also an option. And basically it captures a wide array of different variables that might not be captured in patient data otherwise. So there's obviously a lot of medical history, family history, medication and treatment history, but then there's also the quality of life things that aren't captured 
when you are in a regular clinical trial or even things that your physician, your doctor is not capturing when they're in the room with you. You know, how does this affect your day-to-day quality of life? How does this affect your finances and impact your family? Uh, So it, it captures a lot. Like I said, it's 72 questions and all of that data is longitudinal which means that we hope that people will go in and update it over time so we can track the progress of individuals based on their treatments or based on, you know, the changes that come in their life. And so the goal of this registry overall is to provide a repository of data, which is basically just a big, big, large amount of data for researchers who are interested in certain aspects of studying this disease where they can go in and kind of get support for a hypothesis that they might want to be testing in a a research study and they can get some data to back up what they're saying and to know that they're heading in the right direction. So for example, they might want to study something about, you know, certain demographics of sarcoidosis regionally that they have a hypothesis, you know, they say the Southeast United States has higher rates of sarcoidosis than the rest of the U.S. Well, they could go into our registry and ideally if we have, you know, we're capturing a good amount of patients, they can get data that will support that. But the one thing that I want to circle back to about the registry being anonymous, because it is really important, Mm -hmm. um, especially in this day and age with putting your data online can be scary and intimidating. But I do want everyone to know that the FSR registry is 100% de-identified data which means, yes, we collect your contact information. That's just so you can log back into the registry and update it online as you will. And so if you want to be contacted about clinical trials, that you have that option through the registry as well. However, no researcher or any other entity will ever be able to access your name or link it to your survey results. So yeah, all all of the data that is being provided to any third parties is 100% anonymous and can never be tied back to you. Uh, that's that's a really good point, and you sort of uh, you sort of anticipated my next question, so I, I appreciate that. And so I signed up for that a while ago. Now I've never been prompted to update it, but it's probably only been six months or so since mm-hmm. I filled that all out. Well, I get an email at some point that says, "Hey, how are you doing? How's Humera working?" Or, uh, yes, or do yeah, I just go in and do it? The registry sends out notifications for what we call a second visit. Okay. Um, and there's a period of time, I believe it's, they prompt you after one year and then after that, uh, each additional year. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. But you are also welcome to go in and update it whenever you would like. So you never have to wait for the prompt. Um, you can always go in and update your results. And how do I even get back to that? Uh, you can either do it through the FSR website. We have direct links to the registry, or if you have an email from when you signed up, you can just click a link through there and get directly back to your personal portal. Are you the person that handles the whole website for FSR? Yes, I handle the FSR website, not the registry website that is handled by the PI because we want to make sure that that is as secure as possible. So very few people have access to the registry website. Yeah. But yes, I I manage the whole FSR website. I know just enough about websites to know that you probably never have a chance to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) It, it looks like a lot. I'll tell you, it's, it's uh, really robust. Tell me about endpoint development. That's uh, another area that's sort of key to what FSR is doing. What is, what is endpoint development? 
Yeah, so that's um, our research program that is focused on developing clinical endpoints. And it's similar in the idea of the disease model where currently in the sarcoidosis research space, there is no widely accepted clinical endpoints. Um, and what a clinical endpoint is, is it's, it's certain tests or certain kind of benchmarks, um, points of measurement that would indicate success of a treatment. So they're specifically, for example, looking at a clinical trial. Right now, if you're in a clinical trial and you have pulmonary sarcoidosis and they are testing to see if you have improved and your symptoms have improved, they'll do a six-minute walk test and they'll do a pulmonary function test. And while whatever treatment you're on may have improved your lung function on those tests and your ability to perform that six-minute walk test, that doesn't necessarily mean you feel better. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you feel like the treatment is working for you. As you know, John, there's so many other aspects of sarcoidosis, the fatigue, the brain fog, all of those things. And so it's really important to us to make sure that those are captured in kind of the set of widely accepted clinical endpoints. Because it's not just for clinical trials, but it's also in the clinic when a doctor is putting you on a new medication and saying, all right, John, how do you feel? You've been on XYZ for, you know, eight weeks now. It might be that the, the new medication has addressed some of your physical symptoms, but that doesn't mean that it's addressed all of them. And that doesn't mean that it's really improved your quality of life in a way that we think it should. So what FSR is doing is we're partnering with some of our clinicians who have taken an interest in this area. And we've also created a patient committee for our endpoints summit that we'll be having, where basically we'll be bringing together some of the leading experts who are interested in this, a group of patients who have a vested interest in this because it affects their day-to-day -day lives. Right. Um, and then also some of the other large players in the game. So, you know, large investors in the sarcoidosis space. We're going to get all of those key players together at an endpoint summit, hopefully, but if not just through, I mean, they're already, they've been working for the past year and a half to really figure out what these priorities are, what's doable in the research space, as well as what, you know, what's important for patients, what they really want to be measured. Because I can't tell you how many stories I've heard about patients who a doctor just does a six minute walk test and says, oh, look at that amazing improvement. And just kind of writes off the rest of their symptoms as, oh, well, you know, yeah, you just have to still lose some weight or something. And that's why you feel tired all the time. So it's, it's something that we're really excited about. It's a really important project we know for patients that will have an immediate impact once these guidelines are kind of set and accepted by the research community. So, you know, the term endpoint development to me is a very clinical term. Um, but at the end of the day, what you're measuring is, is did it work? Right? Yes. Did, did the medication work? Are you looking at whether the side effects from the medication are more disabling than the disease itself? Is that one of the things that you're considering? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So as you know, John, prednisone is most sarcoidosis patients' worst enemy. Um, yes, and that's yes. something that we have known from the start. It's something that our founder experienced. It's something that we hear every day from patients and you know, we, we desperately want to get rid of that as kind of the primary and sometimes for patients, the only treatment option. So yeah, that's, it's definitely the idea of side effects and drug toxicity are very much at the forefront of this project. Um, and they're the reason for a lot of what we do. I mean, we've developed a treatment protocol, which includes numerous dozen drugs that are steroid sparing, which basically just means a way to avoid prednisone. And yeah, we're, we're always looking for more ways to help 
kind of help patients avoid that if they can, um, right. because it, it is tough with those side effects. Well, and, and what I am discovering in talking to people and with my own experience is it doesn't matter what level of sarcoidosis expertise your doctor has, they're all sort of playing from the same playbook in terms of we have prednisone and we have methotrexate and we have, you know, I, I could list maybe five or six or seven other drugs and then that's it. And, it, and, and so the doctor's level of expertise can, can only take you just so far. And I think that's frustrating. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something we hear from patients every day. And it's hard for us to address because, you know, we can't be in every clinic and in every doctor's ear. Right. Um, we're certainly developing the resources to try and educate physicians, especially younger physicians as they're going through their training um, so that people don't have that situation with their doctor. But at the end of the day, we also try and provide as many resources as we can for the patients to educate themselves and be empowered to talk to their physicians when, you know, that situation arises. Yeah. So are you seeking additional patients for this endpoint development summit or feedback, or do you, do you have what you need right now with your focus group or where's, what's the status of that? So at this current stage, we have what we need. We have an engaged patient committee that has been working for almost a year now, but there will definitely be opportunities moving forward for other patient engagement, whether it's even just a survey uh, that we'll have patients take to, to report how they feel about certain aspects of what we're working on. Yeah, there's always opportunities to get engaged, whether it's directly with something like the endpoints development or just in general. And that's another thing that we encourage people to join the registry for is that when you join the FSR patient registry, there's actually a box you can check about being contacted about future research opportunities. And so that's a great way to make sure you're in the loop about any upcoming opportunities that might be on the horizon, um, where it would be an opportunity for you to have your voice implemented into a, a larger project that we're working on. Got it. And then the the final area that I see that you are looking at when we look at FSR and the, the four main research areas, we talked about the disease model, the patient registry, the endpoint development. The fourth area is the clinical studies network. And, and what is that all about? Yes. Yeah, so the clinical studies network is great. It's our program that we've probably our research program that's been around the longest. It is a network of research sites. So most of them are medical institutions or labs around the U.S. and internationally, currently on our second cycle of the CSN. Um, so in the past, we had, you know, 12 sites with, I think, one was international. Um, but so what those, those sites are doing in that network is that they are all running studies simultaneously, the same research studies. So a problem that the sarcoidosis research space has had in the past is a lack of communication and sharing of results um, because it's a rare disease and because there's not always a good network for communicating between different research sites. They're all kind of focused on their own work and progressing that. FSR saw an opportunity to kind of coordinate the communication between all of those sites and it allows these different medical institutions to be working on projects at a much larger scale because they're collaborating on the results. So for example, if you know, you're down in Virginia, so if UVA was running a clinical trial um, or some research study 
and they were able to recruit probably 10 sarcoidosis patients from all of Virginia who would be traveling hours to get to UVA for a study. What our clinical studies network does is we're connecting multiple sites who will all be running that same study. So instead of each site having 10 patients, overall we have, you know, over 100 patients enrolled in any given study, which really adds to the the validity of something as, you know, you can imagine if you just have a sample size of you know, 10 patients sure, on a study. Sure. That's you. What do you have when you're all said and done after all that work? You, you exactly. have exactly. anecdotal information and that's it. Exactly. Yeah. So we're able to um, coordinate the communication and the, the studies that they're all executing to have a much larger impact. Um, so when they're publishing this information and when they're seeking out more grant funding, their their study results have a lot more weight because they have a sample of, you know, over a hundred patients that that were participating. So let's, you know, let's let's assume that now that we've gone through this and we know kind of what FSR's mission is in terms of uh, guiding money into research. Somebody says, "Wow, I am really impressed, and I want to I want to help." What would you encourage uh, one of our listeners to do first? Yeah, so I would say go to our website because there are so many different ways that you can get involved. If you're interested in donating, that is something that is always welcome. Obviously, we are a nonprofit. We run off of donations as well as grants. But I mean, we started as a small, small organization that was pretty much 100% uh, grassroots fundraising when we first started out. Um, It was our two founders, and they would ask their friends and family for donations, and eventually it grew. And you know, here we are 20 years later and we're getting, we're, we have the capacity to be writing large grants and be getting grant funding as well, which vastly increases what we're able to do. But we still are, you know, majority funded by individual giving, by, you know, sarcoidosis patients, their families, their friends. So there's multiple ways you can do that. If you want to just donate on our website, just a one-time donation, that's very easy. It's tax deductible. Or you can join Team KISS, as I know, John, you have advocated for um, in yes. podcasts. You've talked about Team KISS. KISS stands for Kick In to Stop Sarcoidosis. Um, it's kind of our fundraising platform. We encourage people to host fundraising events and to set up fundraising pages online. You can fully customize it yourself. So that's a nice way if you don't want to you know, be soliciting friends and family directly to create a Team Kiss page and just share it occasionally on your social media or via email. But then there's also ways for people to get involved that if they're not able to give or, or they want to do more, then just support us financially. Uh, we are always updating our website with these new opportunities, whether it is something as easy as, you know, take this survey, it'll take 15 minutes, but it will have an impact either for us or for, for a research partner that we have. Or if you want to get involved as an advocate, I know, John, you have discussed the training in D.C. that you attended. Uh, We have multiple opportunities for advocacy, whether you want to be an official volunteer advocate that is open year round. Uh, Anyone who is interested can fill out an application through our website and we'll get put in touch with the right resources and people to help them on their way to becoming a, a true sarcoidosis advocate. But yeah, I would say just check out our website because we're constantly updating it. Even if you just scroll down on our homepage, you'll see at the bottom there's kind of our most recent blog posts and those always have opportunities for engaging with us and 
and our programs. Yeah, there, there's so much on your website, and I, and I feel like since this is our initial interview, I just kind of wanted to hit the high points, but I probably could come back and do an interview, Maggie, with you uh, on any one thing that I might click on on this website, and we could talk about that for half an hour because there just is, there's so much going on. I, I'm looking across the top of the website right now, and you're in your uh, drop downs are what is sarcoidosis and then living with sarcoidosis and, and then there's a physician registry and then there's a whole bunch of information about research and then there's uh, some stuff on uh, investors and about and then there's the typical kind of about us and news and the blog and support groups and so forth. Um, you guys have so much going on and, and how you get all of that done with that uh, I still think um, relatively small staff is really amazing to me, and, and it's a credit to to the hard work that everybody is doing there. I'm, I'm looking right now at, uh, I wanted to talk about the KISS thing. My account is open all the time now. Uh, so some people will open it up for a 5K and say, contribute to my KISS account, and then at the end of the 5K, it's done, and they've raised X amount of money. But because I've got the podcast going, uh, and I actually have been running a, a small little public service announcement within the podcast. Um, that's open, and and there'll be a link to that in the show notes so people can donate. And I've noticed that people are doing that, so I think that's really cool. Yeah. So, but it's it's kick in to stop sarcoidosis, and there's uh, there's an easy way that you can donate if you just like the podcast and you want to make a contribution, which I would encourage you to do if you're somewhere in the, uh, the space, as we like to say, of, uh, of sarcoidosis, whether you're a patient, a caregiver, a researcher, uh, or another, you know, someone with a rare disease, uh, I think that's great. And, and Maggie, that, that actually triggers something in my mind. We talk about sarcoidosis and other rare diseases, and I do intend to sort of widen the, the scope of uh, what we talk about here on the podcast. But um, what, you know, when we talk about other rare diseases, what, what does that encompass? Yes, that's a great question because there are countless rare diseases. If you ask some of our partner organizations, they will tell you the true numbers, um, but it's in the tens or hundreds of thousands. It's actually said that one in 10 Americans lives with a rare disease which is an astounding number. But if you think about it, it makes sense because you know we know sarcoidosis is one of the larger populations of rare diseases. The qualification for a rare disease is fewer than 200,000 individuals in America have this okay. disease. Okay. Uh, that's the US kind of qualifications. But if you think about the fact, you know, there are some rare diseases where there's only two or three known cases worldwide. Um, the ones that are some really, you know, specific genetic mutations. But yeah, between all of the the thousands and thousands of rare diseases, it it is one in 10 Americans that lives with a rare disease. So it's more than likely that if you know someone, they know someone. And yeah, it's, it's a very large community. And it's really amazing to see because some of those smaller rare disease communities don't really have much in way of, you know, support and resources because they are so small. But to see them be able to turn around and, and be greeted by this larger rare disease community and the organizations that serve it, for example, NORD is the National Organization of Rare Diseases. They're constantly putting on programming. Actually, we're recording this now. Um, it's the end of February and, and actually today or tomorrow uh, will be National Rare Disease Day because it is a leap year. 
and uh, Nord celebrates on the 28th of every year, except for when it's a leap year, they celebrate on the 29th of February because it's the most rare date. <laughs> wow, that makes sense. Yes, which is exciting. So there's a lot of programming going on um, within the rare disease community to celebrate you know, what we do have in common and the common fights that we have, which is the common fights for research funding and for public awareness and for acceptance for, you know, it's, it's hard when you say, oh, I have sarcoidosis and someone says, what? I've never heard of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know that one. Yes. (laughs) So it's really, it's really amazing to see the rare disease community rallying together around the common causes that we have because we need to. And actually Nord, the organization I mentioned, their motto is alone we are rare, but together we are strong. Because that's really what they do is they unite the the rare disease community to enact, you know, they have a big focus on legislation that will affect the rare disease community, like orphan diseases um, uh, and a lot of stuff like that. But then also just in general, having the support for each other um, and, and providing those resources to each other is important as well for the the rare community. Yeah. Uh, well, I like the idea of doing that on, uh, on leap year uh, when they can, because that is, that is a rare day. So that's, that's, that's a good thing. They got some smart people over there at Nord. Uh, I haven't had any contact with that group yet, but I expect as the uh, podcast uh, continues, that'll be something that we'll want to do. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, uh, I, I know that you know all the people over there. So if you want to send me some information on that, that'd be super. Absolutely. So, uh, I just want to, um, I want to ask you a couple more questions before we close here today. I just want to ask you from FSR's perspective, what, what is the cause for hope for sarcoidosis patients? I mean, John, ultimately we, we have no other option. Um, we, you know, we are in this fight for sarcoidosis patients. We say, you know, we want to put ourselves out of business. This is what we're here for. Um, we are doing everything that we possibly can um, across research, across patient education and support, um, across it all. We are stretching ourselves as thin as we can um, with the resources that we have to make sure that we have the maximum impact for patients. This is, this is what we're here for. And we know that for patients, it's tough because, you know, we can sit here and talk about a disease model and you can ask me, you know, when will we see the impact of that? And it's, it's not an immediate impact. There's not an immediate answer. And so sometimes it is hard to, to talk about these programs. And then when a patient says, well, can I hope to see that in my lifetime? Can I hope to see the impact of that in the next five years? It's, it's difficult because there is so much kind of long-term groundwork that needs to be laid, especially with research programs. But what, what I say is really cause for hope is if you look at where we were in this space 10 years ago, even just five years ago, or back when FSR was founded 20 years ago, it's incredible the amount of momentum that we have gotten with the support of researchers, with the support of patients, with the support of other advocacy organizations who are seeing what we're doing, who are investing in us. And especially in the research space, it's incredible to see the investment on the part of the big players who can make a difference. Like I said, the NIH was not funding any sarcoidosis research you know, regularly a couple decades ago. It, it wasn't on their radar. It wasn't a priority. You know, there wasn't large players in drug development like these pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies. They weren't getting involved because they had no reason to be interested 10, 15, 20 years ago. But just in that short span of time when, you know, we've engaged with the community, we've 
activated a network of patients who are willing to participate in trials and who are willing to give their feedback. That's all 100% necessary for things like drug development and clinical trials to be successful. And the, the wild amount of progress that we have made in such a short period of time is what I think is really what provides hope. Because if we can keep this up, things will only keep growing, um, will only keep gaining momentum. And that's when, like I said, those really large players who really can make a huge impact will be forced to address it. They, they can't overlook us anymore when we have been making such progress and making so much noise in this space. Well, that sounds good. Uh, it really does. I mean, it, it's because I do, I do feel this momentum, even with, um, I guess, because I spent my, my weekend up at the advisory uh, training. But, uh, you know, I, w- I was hearing all those kinds of things. And there are some, there are some drugs that are right there on the horizon already that, you know, will add to the menu, are there not? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something that I, I'm excited that we can explore in, in another podcast is I do want to get you in touch with people who can speak directly to that progress on those specific therapies, because it is something that the, our community needs to know about because one, there, a lot of them are in active clinical trials right now. A lot of them need patients who are willing to participate in a clinical trial and, and provide feedback about these new medications. But yeah, it's, it's, it's so exciting to see multiple new names and faces in the space who are investing in specifically a therapy for sarcoidosis. It's, it's really wild. Well, Maggie Hudson with the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Uh, we've been talking for quite a while, and uh, I think that our listeners know uh, a lot more about FSR than they did. And if they have sarcoidosis and they were, were not aware of uh, that you even existed, uh, they need to get to the website and they need to click around and they, and they need to do uh, one of the many things that we've talked about today. But I, I want to thank you for all your hard work at the foundation and for joining us here on the Sark Fighter podcast. Of course. And I want to thank you, John. This podcast, I know, will have such an impact on patients and their loved ones who who feel alone and are finally hearing themselves for the first time even. So thank you so much for what you're doing for the community as well. It, it means a lot to us. Well, it's, uh, it's certainly my pleasure. I feel like uh, this is in my wheelhouse. When I looked around and said, you know, what can I do? Uh, this just seemed like a, a natural thing for me to do. And, and I can only hope that it, that it has some impact and that we can, uh, we can make the voice stronger for sarcoidosis and other rare diseases and uh, raise some money and raise some awareness and hopefully get some cures and like you say put you guys out of business (laughs) that is the end game goal yes (laughs) okay thank you maggie thank you so much john And thanks so much to Maggie Hudson for joining me on the Sark Fighter podcast. FSR has done so much to advance the cause of beating sarcoidosis. Again, here in 2020, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Sarcoidosis is not a household word yet, but thanks to the efforts of the people at FSR, I can tell you for sure that among that whole group of rare diseases, this is at least becoming one of the better known. 
on the whole business that you heard Maggie discussing with gaining an animal model so research can move forward is huge. And if we can get the money from the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, uh, if we can get them on board, now all of a sudden, instead of a million dollars here and a million dollars there, you're looking at tens of millions of dollars that can be brought into the research, and that will really help advance the cause. So whatever we can all do together to try and make that happen, let's do it. And I think FSR is our best opportunity in terms of having a, a point on the sarcoidosis spear and, and breaking through. I, I want to remind you to uh, check out my blog, uh, Cycling with Sarcoidosis, uh, Bicycling. Um, I know you cyclists are out there. I tend to use cycling as a thermometer for how I'm doing versus the disease. So much uh, so far in 2020, things are way better than they were last year in 2019 when I was taking heavy doses of prednisone and also uh, cytoxin chemo treatments as well. Uh, there'll be a link to the blog in the show notes. And also uh, links to many of the topics that, that Maggie discussed during our interview. Now, as you know, I always like to shine a light on a sarcoidosis case that helps us understand that we are not alone, even if the stories are not always good. And I want to read to you now what I heard from one of my viewers just this past weekend whose adult daughter died from neurosarcoidosis. And she initially emailed me after my story went on TV last year here in Roanoke, and now it's been a year since her daughter died. So this is Beverly Little Miller, dated March 14th, 2020. And she said, this is first written on March 14th, 2019, on the first anniversary of the death of my daughter, Kelly Ray Miller Neal. And she writes, today is the day that I have been dreading for so long. It's the day that my precious Kelly Ray passed away one year ago at the age of 47. I don't know where the year has gone. I go through each day missing her and trying to include her, include her memory in each day. Holidays were the hardest. I talk to her and I let her know how much I miss her and love her. I'm so thankful she's not suffering and going through the degrading aspects of just trying to live with that horrible disease, neurosarcoidosis. I am angry some days. I'm happy some days. I'm so confused some days, wondering why she had to go through all she did. I had her here in my home, thank God, and I learned things about her I never would have known without the close contact I had with her daily. I went with her from hospital to hospital the last months of her life, working so hard to try and get her functioning body back. It was not to be. The last day of her life, before she died in the night, I realized she had accepted her role in life and God's plan for her. She was happy that day. She had a new haircut, a bath, and she put on new pajamas. She did her OT and her PT with a smile, and by the end of the day, she was so tired. Never a complaint came out of her mouth, but she was quieter than usual. After her therapists and nurse left, she went to bed earlier than usual, still not saying much. Oh, how I wish I knew she was leaving. I would have sat with her and held her hand. She used to say that she could feel angels in her bedroom. Did she feel them that night? Was that why she was so quiet? Did she know 
that she was leaving and did not want to upset me. I saw saintly qualities in her that day and the many months before. Funny how looking back can show us things we missed at the time that they were happening. It's really a sad story. Uh, Beverly does uh, go on for a little bit. That was really just an excerpt of what she uh, sent to me via Facebook. And I will post the entirety of what she wrote uh, again in the show notes. But folks, it's stories like this that are why we need to beat this disease. It's a snowflake disease. As no two snowflakes are alike, so too no two of us are affected the same way by sarcoidosis. But the impact is almost always significant. Right now, in the, uh, in the face of the coronavirus pandemic, it might seem trite to be talking about our problems when it seems like the whole world is facing this big problem. But you know what? I think it's still important. There are lots of diseases out there, but those are for other people to fight. All we can do is fight our own battles. So I say to you, as I do at the end of each podcast, until next time, keep fighting.